Welcome to the podcast. I am Shane Barker, your host of Shane Barker's Marketing Madness Podcast. In this episode, we'll be talking about all things books. My guest, David Meerman Scott, is an internationally acclaimed marketing strategist. He's also the founder and partner in Signature Tones, a sonic brand and studio. He serves on the advisory board of a number of companies like Mind, Expert File, Rise CX, Harmony, Gut Check, and a number of nonprofits like the Grateful Dead Archive, the University of Santa Cruz, and Headcount. Listen easily talks how he conceives, names, and writes books. He's also going to give you a little sneak peek into his speaking career. David also shares an interesting story about one of my favorite artists, Bob Marley. All right, cool, everybody. Hey, you guys, once again, welcome to Shane Barker's Marketing Madness Podcast. We have David Beerman Scott here today. And once again, Dave, thank you so much for jumping on the podcast today. Thank you, Shane, for having me on. I really appreciate it. Absolutely, man. Absolutely. So obviously, I was I always tell people this. We, we always ask our audience like, hey, who do you want us to interview? Who do you want us to talk to? You've been on that list for a long time. We're able to get in front of you. I know you've been doing speaking in your book and all kinds of fun stuff. You know, the last few months slowed down probably a little bit just due to this little thing called COVID-19, which has put us in our seats for a little bit, maybe to reevaluate yeah. ourselves and how we do life and how we do things. And so I'm not going to say thank you to COVID-19 because I you know, think there'll be a life lesson that happens because of this. But you know, here we are today. So the people that don't know about you, like, why don't we, I want to start, I always like to start with a little foundation with the audience. Like, where did you sure. grow up your family? Like, kind of give us a little background. So I uh, grew up in various places because my dad was a corporate sales and marketing guy. So a little bit of time in Massachusetts and in different places in New York. But I like to say that I'm from Connecticut because that's where I lived when I went to high school. And I went to college in Kenyon College in the cornfields of Ohio. And then I thought I wanted to be a bond trader. So after I graduated from college, I went to Wall Street, got a job as a bond trader, and actually was on a bond desk. I wasn't quite the trader. I was sort of an assistant. And I hated it. It was terrible. It was just a whole <laughs> bunch of like young men barking into telephones, which I just didn't like. Yeah. What I really loved was the information that the bond traders used, the um, Dow Jones and Reuters screens, things like that. It was really interesting to me. So I spent about 15 years in the corporate world. Ten of those years were in Asia. I lived in Tokyo and in, and in Hong Kong. And I was working for real-time information companies, mm. selling and marketing services to bond traders all over the world living in Asia. And I was really lucky because that experience of being first on a bond trading desk and then working in the information, most of that was pre-web. And so I had essentially a head start into what this internet thing is <laughs> because I was using real-time information before practically anyone else on the planet was. It was really just a handful of bond traders that were using this kind of information. So I was really lucky. And then 18 years ago, I went out on my own to share the ideas that I learned in various ways. You know, I think like all of us, I lucked into things that I hated. I lucked into things that I loved and figured out some things that other people didn't know. Yeah. Well, it's that journey, right? It's kind of like, it's, it's yeah. always, that's, that's why I always ask like foundation questions and stuff. Cause I'm always intrigued mm. by the journey that everybody takes. Right. Cause it's, and a lot of times everybody says, Hey, I started here and I don't know how I ended up here. You say you lucked into it. Right. <laughs> and then I was here, then I was here and these things happened. That kind of sucked. But Hey, then it caused me to do this. And then I met my wife here because of this. And you know, I, I look at it, it's a journey. I, I love, that's why I have the podcast is marketing and all that kind of stuff. Obviously is intriguing and I love it, but it's really hearing the backstory on how people's journey, like where they you know, started at here and they went here. I just, I love that backstory on it. So 
Where did you, and so your family, how big was your family growing up? I have two brothers. Both of them are younger. And my dad was a corporate guy. My mom was, um, you know, an upscale housewife type, making sure that we went to the right country clubs and all that sort of thing. Yeah which is definitely not the life that I carved out for myself. <laughs> uh, my wife is Japanese. And we've got one daughter who's obviously half Japanese. And I know we'll talk about it in a couple of minutes, but my daughter, Mariko, she's 27 years old now, and she's my co-author in my latest book, Fanocracy. But we just got news about her. She's just graduating from medical school, and she's going into emergency medicine. And a couple of days ago, learned that she's going to be going to um, Boston Medical Center for her residency program. And all the medical schools in Massachusetts, where we live, including Boston University School of Medicine, where Reiko currently goes, uh, are pushing the graduation dates up by a couple of months. And then the governor is granting them their medical license early by a couple of months. So as we're recording this, in just a couple of weeks, my daughter will be literally on the front lines of COVID-19 for all of New England at Boston's largest emergency facility in the, all of New England. And she's going to be an emergency room doctor. So um, it's kind of thrown me for a bit of a loop because I feel like I'm sending her off to war. You know, it's like I mean, she went she went from my daughter, the college student, to my daughter, the medical school student, to oh my god, this is real. She's right. going to be an emergency room doctor at Boston Medical Center dealing with COVID nineteen in just a couple of weeks. I mean, it's you know, it's it's crazy. So I have that my wife's a nurse. And so, oh, and, wow. Yeah. And so I'm dealing with that right now of the, I drop my wife off to work every day, not because we don't have two cars, but I just like to spend that time with her and I drop her off yeah, at work. Of and every time I drop her off, it's just like, I think, man, my mom was a nurse. My aunt was a nurse. And we have a long line of the medical field. And, you know, I, for me, it's like, man, it's, I mean, she's in a part of the hospital that's, you know, works with preemie babies, healthy preemie babies. So mm -hmm. not quite as much as a front line, but I mean, a hospital is the front line, right? I mean, there's obviously different yeah, levels Yeah, of course to that. it is. But of course um, it is. I could imagine you're like, hey, Reiko, God, I'm so proud. Wait a second. Wait, wait, where are you going? Yeah. <laughs> I know it, it happens so quickly. It's like, yeah, she's my co-author on this book. And yeah, she's my daughter. And she's just about to graduate. And like, all of a sudden, it's like, because she didn't know where she was going to do a residency. She applied, you apply, but yeah. you don't know till a certain point. And all of a sudden it's bang. Not only are you doing emergency room, bang, you're graduating early, bang, you got to be at the hospital in three weeks. It's like, wow, that's crazy. It is crazy. It's crazy how, I guess, you know, and not to, you know, I want to turn this into a COVID-19 podcast, but you know, it's, it, it is crazy the amount of changes that have happened. Like as an example, like we're recording this today, and by the time this comes out, let's say it's a week or two weeks max, there could be 50 other things that have happened since then. So the things we talk yeah. about now, it's incredible the pace that things are happening. I mean, whether it's just life, I mean, just all these different things yeah. that happen every morning, you know, you kind of wake up and kind of like, you know, you, I kind of walk around, I kind of like, I read a little bit of the news. I'm trying to take in just a little bit at a time. I don't need it all at once. You know, yeah, just, you don't want to OD from it. No, 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 no. You definitely don't. Especially because if you OD and you survive, then you end up in the emergency room, which you don't want to go there <laughs> right now. Right. So, I mean, that's yeah, yeah. all joking aside, but I think it's just a challenge. It's it just an interesting time. I mean, it really feels to me, I feel like I'm, you know, you watch a movie. We've seen movies about this, right? And you're like, oh, that's crazy. And you go out and you have popcorn all over your face when you're leaving the movie theater, like, oh, that would be nuts. And then all of a sudden, you know, I'm not eating popcorn right now. Like we're in it, you know, that we're in the middle of this thing. I don't know what you're feeling, Shane, but what I've been going through here is that when we're not able to meet people in person, 
You know, I, I speak at about 40 live events a year all over the world. I've spoken in 40 countries, all seven continents. You know, I love, I love the speaking circuit. I, I really dig it. And I haven't been on an airplane now in more than a month. And it looks as though, I mean, I don't have, everything's been canceled or postponed all the way yeah. through June. And so what's interesting to me that I've noticed, and I'm interested, I wonder too, is that just before this whole thing broke, I felt like the online world was getting more and more and more polarizing. And it was getting more and more like in your face and just trying to sell stuff. And in the political world, it's polarized online. And the social networks themselves all optimized around profit. But what I've felt in the last couple of weeks, and I see this increasing, is that I think so many people are now adopting a kinder and gentler approach to life. You know, it's like when we can't meet people in person, we get kinder and gentler in the online world. So I'm really optimistic that we'll come out the other side of this with a new way of doing our online business, a new way of doing online marketing, which is way more personal, way more kinder and gentler to repeat myself, then it has been over the last couple of years because I feel like people have been abusing the channel recently. So that's pretty exciting, I think, that this, although it's a terrible situation and it's upending everybody, that I see positive outcomes to it. I do too. I'm a very optimistic person myself. And I, I have to tell you, I do feel like, and we talked about this a little bit when we started the podcast, is like everybody's kind of been put on timeout. Like Mother Nature says, listen, we're going to, you guys, like your mom said, listen, you guys, you know what? You guys go work this out. You guys go in your room, you and your brother go figure this out. And I feel like we've been put on a little bit of a timeout, maybe for everything, yeah. right? And it, it is very interesting because I think everything happens for a reason. And I'm a firm believer in that. I know that's difficult if you're going to change. How do you look at that when there's potentially hundreds of thousands of people that can potentially die from this, right? And, and I'm not saying that's, that's great. I'm not saying that I would love for a family member or anybody I know to be a part of that. But I do have to look at the other side of it of like, I do believe everything happens for a reason, right? And it's mm -hmm. very difficult when we're in the middle of it to explain that or to try to figure that out. But I do know that good things are going to happen because of this. I do know that, mm -hmm. I mean, I've seen that. Let me give you an example. And you've already kind of touched on it is I've had more people reach out to me in the last two weeks and just ask me how I'm doing. Yeah. Just randomly. People I that I haven't me talked too. to in me years. Too. Hey, Shane, me just too. want to see how you're doing. Haven't talked to these people in five years, 10 years, 15 years. And I'm like, wow. And not a like, hey, let's see if we can do some business together. Hey, let's see. Hey, can I borrow some money? Or hey, can I, you know, like literally, hey, I just want to see how you were doing. Like going back yeah. to the basics of not this like when you see somebody, oh, hey, how you doing? Oh, doing good. Hey, nice. Okay, see you there, John. You know, see you about, you know, then you walk off. Right, right. It's like literally like I'm asking, what is your well-being? What is your current situation? Yeah. And I think that's change. That's a huge change. And I'm seeing, I've talked about this on other podcasts this week because I obviously have mine and I have other ones I've been on. You know, outside I have, we, we have a park across the street. I've seen more people out there with their families during quarantine. And this is when you're supposed yeah. to be inside. Right now they're six yeah. feet away and they're doing their thing. But the thing is, it's like, it's just crazy. It's already starting to change things, I think in a good way, right? Even though we're at the beginning stages of this. And once again, when this comes out in one week, two weeks, you know, New York could be shut down. We could, I mean, right, there's a lot of right. things that could happen, right? But, sure. and I know it freaks people out and you know, I'm a little freaked out myself, not over the top. I mean, I'm, you know, once can keep a level head about it. I know that once again, this, this is the way that it is. This is our journey. Then this is our journey. And I'm okay with that.
you know, you just try to mitigate as, as well as you can as you're going mm-hmm. through it. Mm-hmm. But I do think, I think there's going to be some amazing things that will happen. I think on the family side of things, I think on, on the world side of things and the way that people like you touch on the way that people are doing marketing, it's less this, even now, I mean, I, I see it. And now I think people are going, Hey man, like, why are you trying to promote yourself during this time? Like, why are you, it just looks ugly. You know, it's like, right. You're missing right. the point. Like the thing that happened, I'll give you an example is we went to, we had, I had two of my biggest clients that canceled like within, this was like a week ago. And they came in and said, Hey, we're like scared to death. And I told my team, Hey, we're going to do a call with them. Like, yeah, what are we going to do to get them back on? And I said, that's not going to be my goal is to, to bring yeah. them back on. They're like, what do you mean? You know, this and cap working cap. All and I said, no, no, I'm not. This is the thing. I'm, I'm going to ask them how they're doing. And we're going to figure yeah. that out, right? And so that's what I did. And, and I think both of them, I know both of them, they were like, we really, we thought this was going to be like a rah, rah, hey, you know, you have to come back on board. Like your contract says this. And I said, no, it's not because right. we need to be more humanistic, right? Yeah. I can tell you no, what the contract, I you totally know what the contract says, and you know that you have to cancel in 60 days or whatever, whatever that is. But I'm not looking at that because I'm, I'm, you're, not, you're not canceling because we didn't do good work. You're canceling because either you're scared or because a situation, something's happened to you on your side, right? And that's understandable. And so- Totally agree with you. I just feel like the humanistic side, the being more human of like, this is the first time in history and probably not going to be the last, but maybe the last time we see it, I don't know, where we all have a common enemy, right? We all have a common goal of getting rid of COVID-19. Yeah. And it's global. That's what's really interesting. It's global. It's all over the world. And, you know, without naming names- you know, people in our political world have been finding enemies over the last three or four or five years. And now it's a common enemy that it's not us versus them. It's us versus it. Yeah. (laughs) Which is a very different way of thinking of of the world. Yeah. I love it. I just love it in the sense that I really hope that, you know, once again, people will think of, it'll bring people together. That's what I'm excited about. It doesn't matter if you have brown skin, yellow skin, green skin, purple skin. It's like, the idea is, is like, we, we need to figure this out. So if you can put your ego or whatever aside, and we need to talk about resources, we need to figure out what we need to do. We need to do whatever that is. And I love that. I love that. I, I you know, it's crazy now. And now I see, you know, we're seeing this of like, Hey, we got to get the homeless people off the streets. Right? We mm. got to do this and we got to do that. And I love that. But, you know, then it makes me think, okay, like what's going to have to get into homelessness and all that. I know it's an, another ball of wax here, but I just think it's, I just really hope that it brings people back to the point of like, hey, we're in this together and what can we do to help each other? Right? No, I think that's right. I think that's right. That's what I'm seeing. Yeah, me too. And I'm loving it. I just, unfortunately, it's going to get worse before it gets better in regards to the situation. Right. And hopefully that just pulls people back to want to care more. So that's what I'm hoping. I guess, I guess we'll see how that goes, but I, Let's talk. I want to talk about a little bit about. Oh, I want to talk a lot about your book because obviously you've written. How many books have you written? Eleven books. Eleven. I can't even spell the word eleven, and you've written eleven <laughs> books. I mean, that's well. And the other thing that's interesting is the one that I'm best known for is called "The New Rules of Marketing and PR." Originally came out in 2007, and the seventh edition of that book comes out in May of 2020. So, you know, around the time that this will release is is when that new edition comes out. And that's been a remarkable run. That that book sold 400,000 copies in English. It's in 29 other languages. and But I've got 10 other ones. And I think by far my best is the new one called Fanocracy, yeah. turning fans into customers and customers into fans. And it's really a book for the current times, which I'm pretty excited about as well. Absolutely. So for, I'm going to touch on the fact you've written 11 books and the fact that you have it in, I don't know how many different languages. 29 different languages, soon to be 30. I know it's crazy. That is, I mean, that, that like, it brings you up from, I write a book to legendary status. I mean, that, at that point you, <laughs> you have a book that everybody, I mean, when that many languages, like it's, that's insane. So 
What is your process with writing? I mean, I, I know you've, I mean, mm-hmm. obviously you've written 11 of them. I want to talk about bankruptcy, obviously, in, in a sure. second. But tell me a little bit about your process when it comes to writing. I'm, the reason that this literally is just for me. Like, I'm being very selfish here. Yeah. I've no, talked about good. writing a book. You know, I've got all the you ideas. You should. Now's the time. I've, I mean, I've got Now's time. Now's the time, right? I just have now's to cure my ADHD. So as soon as I can get rid of that and figure out that, that's, that's, that's the hardest part for me is like, and you know, it's like anything, the podcast, all this other stuff, but like, uh, I like have what I want to do, but it's just, I, I guess I'm just yeah. understanding, and everybody has their process and I can read a thousand books. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, you know, but tell me a little bit about yours. I'm going to talk about my process, but I'm going to also talk about it in a way that I've never heard anyone else talk about. So I am a massive live music fan. I've been to 804 live concerts in my life. I have a spreadsheet where I keep them. Uh, I've been to 75 Grateful Dead concerts. I started going to shows when I was 15 years old back in the late 1970s. So I, this has been a real thing of mine. I like to look at music metaphors. So my process when I think about a, a topic to write a book on is I first kind of analyze the things I've tweeted about. What gets engagement? What are the things that I post on LinkedIn? What's getting engagement and why? And then when I see patterns, then I'm like, oh, that's interesting. And then I start to write some longer form content like blog posts or do some videos. And if that starts to get traction, I say to myself, oh, okay, there's something going on here. This seems pretty interesting. But then I always take it back to I'm looking for a pattern in the universe that nobody else sees. I'm looking for a topic for a book that's new and has not been explored. So to bring it back to the music metaphor, I need my book, absolutely have to have my book be original music, not be a cover band, not be playing somebody else's music. And if I look at, um, you know, there's probably been 10,000 marketing books published in the last decade. If I look at those 10,000 marketing books that have been published in the last decade, the vast majority of them are cover bands. The vast majority of them are not breaking new ground. The vast majority of them are taking ideas that have been talked about before and changing them up slightly and and putting, putting them out. So I look at what's a pattern in the universe that I see that no one else is seeing. So for the new rules of marketing and PR originally came out in 2007, what I was seeing at that time was that marketing on the web is not about advertising but about publishing content. That was a radical idea when I was writing that book in 2005 and 2006. And then that one came out in 07. It was the first book ever on, and you can name the, you can call it content marketing. I call it the new rules of marketing. HubSpot calls it inbound marketing. You can call it social media marketing, all of those terms. This was the first book on that subject. Then a couple of years later, I was seeing patterns in the universe where whole world of marketing was going real time. And there was a a little change that Google made more than a decade ago that almost nobody remembers. But Google was not real time for the first decade or so that it was out. If you wrote a blog post, it wouldn't get indexed for a couple months. If you changed your website, it wouldn't get changed in Google search engine for a couple months. And then they figured out how to make their search engine update in real time. If I write a blog post, it's instantaneously within the search engine. I thought that was like one of the most fundamental things that Google had ever done, but no one else was talking about it. And at the same time, Twitter came out becoming a real-time tool. So I wrote a book called Real-Time Marketing in PR because I was seeing a pattern in the universe that no one else was seeing. I wrote a book called Marketing Lessons from the Grateful Dead with Brian Halligan, the CEO of HubSpot, because the pattern in the universe we saw that was that the Grateful Dead 
was essentially the, an original social network before Mark Zuckerberg was even born because of the, some of the ways that they treated their customers as part of a network, which was really, really interesting. And then with this newest book, Fanocracy, the pattern in the universe that I was seeing is that any organization can develop fans in the same way that the Grateful Dead has developed fans which I'm a huge fan of, or my daughter Reiko, my co-author in Fanocracy, is a massive Harry Potter fan. So in the same way that, that Harry Potter has developed fans, any organization can develop fans. So when I think about my writing, I know this is a long answer to a simple question, but when I think about my process for writing a book, it absolutely 100% starts with what's a pattern in the universe that I'm seeing that no one else is seeing? and a book that has never been written before. And that's the first step. And that's a hard step. And what's even harder is naming a freaking book. It took me six months to come up with the name Fanocracy. Because every time I name a book, I want to own it in the search engine. I want to own it in the Amazon search. And I want it to be a term or a phrase or a word that everybody can instantly understand and that people might want to talk about, like new rules of marketing and PR, real-time marketing and PR, marketing lessons from the Grateful Dead, Fanocracy. I did something called newsjacking, which is now so popular it's in the Oxford. English dictionary. So all of those words and phrases were things that I could own in the search engines that I could own in people's minds. That's all the hard part. <laughs> the easy part is I don't ever think of a book as 75,000 words. I think of it as 150, 500 word blog posts. Nice. And that makes it palatable. It makes it easy. See, if I look at it that yeah. way, I'm like, well, I just have to write 600 of them. Right. If you think about the average business book, maybe 75,000 words, and the average blog post is 500 words. If you write one blog post a day for 75 days, you've written a book. And then you just have to rearrange it and put it in order and figure out what chapters are and edit and all that sort of stuff. But All right. That makes it more palatable for me. So 500 words I can do. When it goes 75,000, I just... You know, I just start drooling. That's what people my mouth. freak. Yeah, that's what happens. People freak out about writing a book. A book. Oh my gosh! Yes. But no, you just take just take it in chunks. So think, you know, maybe I don't know, fifteen chapters, and each chapter is five thousand words. Each chapter is roughly ten blog posts, and you're good to go. There we go. All right. Hopefully, next time we talk, I'll be able to have you. Then you can, I can sign and give you a free book or something like that. If not, I'll give there you There you go. Idea. And then you make sure though that it, it's original. It's not a cover band. It might be the only one that's written. It might, it might even be just a PDF, but I'm going to sign that for you and you're going to get that first copy, my friend. I'm Don't looking forward that. to that, Shane. It's exciting. Can't wait. I know, especially in the, in the world of COVID-19, Shane's giving out free books he hasn't written yet. So that's when you know things uh. are good. That's when you know the economy's turning around. So tell us a little bit about your most recent book, because obviously, like you said, we we understand what you've done. I mean, you've written 10, 11 books in all kinds of languages. Tell me about the current book that you wrote, and, and you wrote it with your daughter, which I think is phenomenal. So will you kind of give me a little, give me a little background on that? Sure. So Reiko and I, about five years ago, were just commenting to one another about how we're just massive fans of the things we love. And I mentioned it already, but Grateful Dead, live music for me. Reiko, such a Harry Potter fan, seen every movie multiple times, read every book multiple times, went to the Wizarding World of Harry Potter in Orlando twice, even went to the UK to go to the studio tour. I mean, she also wrote an 85,000 word alternative ending novel to the Harry Potter series and posted that on a fan fiction site 
that's been downloaded and read thousands of times, commented on hundreds of times. So that's how much of a Harry Potter geek she is. And I'm like, Reiko, I've been thinking about doing a book on this idea of fandom. And my thesis is that any organization can build fans in the way that Harry Potter has built fans, in the way that Grateful Dead has built fans. I'm thinking about writing and researching that. I want to ask you some questions. (laughs) So I kept quizzing her, you know, what would a millennial think of this? What would a woman think of this? What would a Comic-Con fan think of this? And, And I kept asking her all these questions. And then finally it dawned on me, I was being, her voice was so important to this book. So why not, and don't just have a, a 50-something-year-old white guy write the book. Have it be a 50-something-year-old white guy who loves the Grateful Dead writing together with a mixed race. I mentioned earlier my wife's Japanese, so Reiko's half Japanese. A mixed race woman born in Tokyo who loves Harry Potter, who's got a neuroscience degree, and who's going to be an emergency room physician. Two very different viewpoints, but both of us have the same viewpoint about fandom. So then we just spent five years researching and writing this, this book around that idea. And we did find examples of all kinds of organizations, B2B companies, enterprise software companies, nonprofits, government agencies, all kinds of organizations that have built fans. One of my favorite examples is in the automobile insurance business. (laughs) It's not a a business you would think can develop fans, but um, Haggerty Insurance is um, an organization that insures classic cars. And they have over a million fans. So they go to classic car shows, can't do it now during COVID-19, but typically have gone to classic car shows where people who love classic cars gather. They put on uh, seminars, they provide advisory work to people, they talk about values of classic cars, how to take care of your classic car so it retains its value, things like that. They have a YouTube channel with over a million subscribers. They're an auto insurance company. They have an online community of 650,000 members where people connect and chat about their, 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 their classic cars. And now they're the largest classic car insurance company on the planet. And when I interviewed Mikhail Haggerty, the entrepreneurial CEO and founder of the company, he said, David, there's no way we could have competed with every other insurance company. So we decided to go out and build fans. And it's been amazingly successful for us. So Reiko and I found a whole bunch of examples like that of organizations in surprising businesses that have built massive fandoms. So we wrote a book with some prescriptions about how organizations could build fans, but super fun to write with her, super fun to geek out about the things we love and you know why am I a fan of the Grateful Dead? Why is Reiko a fan of Harry Potter? Figure out what that means for developing fans of any business. So how did that work for you guys writing the book together? I mean, you guys obviously seem like you have a great relationship, but there's got to be, I can only imagine, I mean, it's, if I can imagine if my son and I went to go write a book and we have a great relationship, but that's, I mean, how did that, like, how was Christmas? If like, she was, you know, you're just like, listen, you're running a little behind on your stuff. And I mean, how, <laughs> how did that work out? Like that just, I mean, it's already hard enough to do it yourself. I would think for myself, but then having yeah. another person in the mix. Well, when we started this project, she was only 21 years old, just about to graduate from, un, uh, from on her undergraduate degree. She went to Columbia, did a neuroscience degree. And so when we started, our relationship was hierarchical. I was paying for her college education. Mm. When she wasn't in her dorm, she was living under my roof. I was the father. She was the daughter. 
And we realized really quickly that hierarchical relationship was not going to work writing a book. So we very quickly went to a partnership of equals. She had to feel comfortable telling me that a chapter I wrote sucked. (laughs) Absolutely. And I had to feel comfortable telling her that she's a better writer than I am when she is. (laughs) So that was the first thing. And we sorted that one out quite early. So that ended up being a really, actually really positive effect on a relationship. But then we had a false start where we spent about a year, the first rough, most of the first draft, we wrote in a unified voice of the two of us. So when you write a book with a co-author, you've got a choice to make of how you want that voice to come through. And we were writing in a neutral voice that encompassed both of our, our ideas. And it just wasn't working because my voice was being smoothed over, her voice was being smoothed over, over, and it was a really generic approach. So we realized that we screwed up and we had to start the book all over again, where she wrote half of the chapters roughly, and I wrote half the chapters, but it actually has a byline who wrote that chapter. So chapter four by David, chapter five by Reiko. And it's a really cool way for us to share the things that we wanted to talk about But the reader then sees it from the perspective of a mixed race millennial woman versus a um, middle-aged white Grateful Dead fan. (laughs) And then as well, when we finished the book and recorded the audio book, we recorded it together and we just read the chapters that we wrote, which worked out really well also. So the process was great because we came at it from a partnership of equals. And then we realized pretty early enough that it wasn't terrible that the original way we were writing the book wasn't working. We had to make a, a pivot and then figured out that change so that now it's really good. And I mentioned earlier, she's a better writer than I am. She, tru- than I am. she truly is. So now that she wrote her chapters, I wrote mine, it's been really funny. Like 40 or 50 people have danced around this with me. No one has come out and said it. Not a single person has come out and said, David, she's a way better writer than you. <laughs> but people dance around it. They say, you know, Reiko's writing is really interesting. It's um, it's almost lyrical. And I go, I know she's a better writer than me. And like, yeah, she is. It's like, <laughs> you could say it. I, I, that's all right with me. I'm okay and then with someone it. else, you know, other people would say, wow, you guys have very different writing styles. She's better than me. Yeah, she is. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> I love it. It's hysterical. It's hysterical because yeah. no, no one wants to feel as though they're hurting my feelings by saying that I suck. I don't suck, but she's just a better writer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You just, you've just met your match and she just writes a little differently. Not a, not a big deal. That's okay. <laughs> we always want our kids to do better than us, right? So that, that's, mm. uh, to me, that's not a bad thing. So you guys worked on that book for five years and it just came out, was yeah. it the beginning of 2020? Uh, January 2020, yeah, absolutely. Oh, awesome. And Tony Robbins wrote the forward to the book, which is also an exciting aspect of it. That is. I speak at all of Tony Robbins' Business Mastery events and have since 2014. And he's become a friend and we become business partners. And so I was really excited that he was willing to write the forward to the book. So talk a little bit about your speaking career, because you said you've been pretty much to every continent and spoke. I mean, how many, how long have you been speaking for? Pretty much full time since 2007. And before that, I did do paid speeches, but it wasn't the majority of my revenue. Yeah. I'm telling you, I, my paid speaking events that I do are just, it's a very small percentage of my revenue. And then this was a year where I was like, Hey, I'm really want to kind of go through, you know, I want to be, you know, I want to do this, whatever, 20 times a month. And we were doing this, that, and the other. And then all of a sudden 
Glad that we yeah. didn't we didn't pull that plan for. I have a lot of yeah, friends right now. That's like, like let's let's sell the rest of the business and only do speaking. That's, you don't want to do that. Awesome. In, you don't want to you don't want to do that in 2020. No, no, it isn't. I have, uh, and I know that you, Brian Fanzo, and some of those guys. I know Brian yeah. really well, and when I talked to him, this was at the beginning of this whole COVID thing, and he was like, "Man, because I just last 48 hours, I had five paid gigs that that pulled down on me." You know? It's yeah, like, I, I had dinner with Brian at Social Media Marketing World first two or three days of March. I forget exactly when it was, and we were having that discussion. And Jay Bear was in the room, and a couple other people in the room. When we had dinner, having dinner, and and we were like, "Wow, you know, we're just on the." cusp of this where we're starting to get these cancellations and you know there are different levels of what people thought was going to happen and one person said i don't think i'm going to have any paid speaking gigs in 2020 and i'm like nah we're going to be over this quickly and now i i don't know who knows i who knows what's going to happen yeah fortunately i'll be fine even if i don't have any paid speaking gigs this year but i just love it so much that i want to get back on the road i love meeting people i love being on a stage i love the travel i love going interesting places i love talking to entrepreneurs about their business so i certainly hope it it ends quickly but if it doesn't i can figure out ways to survive yeah that's the thing and i think that's another thing to think about from the entrepreneurial perspective i was thinking about this recently a lot of and you see this with, with what's happening in people's businesses i mean most people unfortunately most businesses are you know they're month to month when it comes to cash yeah. flow and stuff like that and i think this is going to help business owners reevaluate how they do things i mean i'll tell you I mean, I'm a great example of that. We, you know, all of a sudden my two big client, biggest clients quit and we were, you know, have a call with them and this, that, and the other. And then I started looking at my expenses and start cutting back on stuff that I've had, you know, access to software and just stuff to running a little bit of a more of a lean machine. Not that, you know, I'm not going to make it next month, but just to saying like, what do we need to do? And I'm, I'm like, man, I should have done that six months ago. You know, there's yeah. just other projects we look at. And now I'm really looking at, you know, ROI in a different perspective. Because before it was like, hey, we're doing this, we're doing that. We've got these projects going. It's not bringing a lot of money right now. It's fine. We're, let's just move forward on it. And now I'm looking at this thing going, okay, like maybe there's some things we got to kind of put on the shelf for a little bit. Like it really is, is helped my perspective and, and what I want to focus on. Because I'm very great at doing a lot of things at the same time. Well, I'm, I'm probably... I think that I'm great at doing that. I, other people might disagree with that. But, you know, it's like this thing of like, and now, so now I'm really leaning down and saying, hey, what, what do we need to work on today? And it just, I think that mindset, because I can, I'm great at telling other people that and helping mm. them with that, but not doing it myself. And so it's interesting. I think it's already kind of like, like I said, my mindset's already changed just from the last few weeks. No, I think that's right. I mean, in my case, I've always had a lot of paid speaking gigs um, coming in and the, lots of revenue coming in. So I haven't really paid that much attention on the expense side. And so many things sort of creep into the expenses. You know, I look at my American, I, you know, you just normally just pay the American yeah. Express bill, but yeah. there's so many recurring charges on the American Express bill for like this online subscription and that website thingamajig. And, you know, you, why do I own 50 domains? And I'm, you know, what's up with that? I know GoDaddy sends me, hits my credit card every single month for something or other. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, maybe now's the time to think about the expense side of the equation when there's no money coming in on the um, on the income side of the equation. That's what it did for me. Before, once again, same thing as you. It's like they come in, you pay it. It's not a big deal. I'm not going to go, you know, look up a $15, $20 charge here. Boy, I sure did some research last week. Boy, I was like 15 bucks yeah. here, 20 bucks here. Hey, anybody using this? Hey, we're using this. And you know, it, yeah. it's, it's a crazy, and once again, I think scaling back, which is, that's why a lot of softwares are like, wait a second, everybody's leaving. Like, well, I didn't even know I was using your, I wasn't using your software anyways, but 
it is, I just think that leaner approach, I think will, will help, you know, will help people in, in this, in this time of need. I do have a funny story about GoDaddy though. So I used to own, there was a point where I owned and I, I went to domain name counseling. So now I'm, I'm better mm. and I've gone through rehab and everything <laughs> like that. So I'm better now. I'm, I'm uh, a better person. Yeah. Yeah. I'm approaching the need for that, although not quite there yet. <laughs> I used to own 500 domain names. Oh my God. And the funny part was, well, not funny. Were you speculating or did you just find, find them and think they're cool and decide to buy them? The answer is yes to both. So I would okay. buy domain names because I thought they were cool names, right? And so I was like, and probably I'd read a blog article in 2003 or something that said, you know, one day these will be worth something. And it really resonated with me. And I thought, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hoard them. I'm just going to buy all the domain names that GoDaddy has. And then one day somebody will come to me and say, I want to buy that domain name. And I'm like, well, it usually is $10, but I'm going to charge 10 grand. And they're going to say, how about if I give yeah. you a hundred thousand, Shane, because you know, we really want that domain name <laughs> and I'd retire. And yeah. obviously I would, you know, go do my thing on the Island that I just bought. Yeah. Most of that stuff didn't happen now that I think about it. But you know, there was a point where my wife came to me. She was the one that said, Hey, like she's not in my business. And what I mean by that is she doesn't like check my expenses and stuff. And she's yeah. like, Hey, I know that you're talking to the team about, you know, building out these domains and like, how many do you have? And I was like, oh, I, I don't know. I think I got like maybe a hundred or something. Maybe two. I don't, I'm not really sure. So we'll look at it. I said, okay. So I look at it. I'm 500 deep, right? I'm like, oh, Jesus. Uh, so nice. I'm like, and she goes, so, um, so how many? I said, well, give or take, uh, I don't know, maybe close to 500, 500. And she's <laughs> like, I'm sorry, what? 500, 500 in total? And she goes, oh, okay. And so, so how many of those are you going to develop this year? And I said, uh, three. <laughs> Probably, yeah, 300 maybe. I mean, we're going to be very aggressive this year. We want to come up with a, a domain name or we want to come up with a website a day is our goal. And she goes, you're, that's not funny. And she's like, so you're paying $10 <laughs> times 500. So you're paying $5,000 a year for your domain names and you yeah. probably will develop, yeah, the answer is really three and that could even be a push. And I go, yeah. yeah. She goes, do you think it's time to get rid of them? And I'm like, yeah, but you know what's going to happen when I get rid of them? Somebody else is going to buy it. And she goes, yeah. I know. It's going to be okay. You'll be able to survive. <laughs> and so I like started like shedding domain names after counseling and everything and realized that, you know, that the that I will still get special rates with GoDaddy if I only have 50 or something, you know, and it's, so yeah, I started right. shedding and now, and I've only, the funny part is I actually did sell a domain, but this was after I had shedded them all. And I sold one for a good amount of money, probably a few months ago, but it was just random. And all my other ones, I didn't make a dollar off of, put all my you know, yeah. working thing up and do this and do that. Never made a yeah. dollar from them. You know, it's just one of those deals, but. Yeah, me too. I've never sold one. I mean, I might've sold one for like nothing, for like a hundred bucks, which paid for, you know, hosting for a minute or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, I tend to buy them not so much that I think they'll be valuable one day, but I buy them and say, oh, that's cool. Maybe I'll use that one time. <laughs> well, and I was a nice mix of both. I thought either I would sell it or I thought if I think it's a great idea, there's somebody else. And I just never found yeah. that other person that thought it was a great idea. You know, like it yeah. was, and of course, I, anyways, I just, to me, it was real estate. And I always tell people, oh, it's real estate. And so I bought it and it was the most expensive real estate that I never did anything with. <laughs> I didn't even get to keep the land or anything. I was like, okay, I'll nice. give it back. I apologize. Nice. But so other than your speaking stuff, so tell us, I know you got some hobbies. Don't you love, you're like a, you love surfing. Isn't it like, is it? I'm into surfing. I'm also really into the Apollo lunar program. I have one of the best collections on the planet of artifacts that have flown to the moon on, on the Apollo missions. Uh, I actually have a home museum in my house. And I wrote a book called Marketing the Moon that came out about six or seven years ago. Did well, but that was optioned for a movie and was turned into a film called Chasing the Moon. That was a three-part miniseries 
um, PBS American Experience. So, you know, that's the second book that was a hobby that turned into a marketing book. You know, my love of the Grateful Dead turned into marketing lessons from the Grateful Dead. My love of the Apollo Lunar Program turned into marketing the moon. So I guess there's a pattern there. <laughs> get, get really interested in something that I geek out about and then figure out what the marketing angle is on it and then write a book about it. So was your, and where'd you meet your wife? Um, I lived in Tokyo for seven years. My wife's Japanese. We met there. Gotcha. And is she as into music as you are? Nope. She's into her things. I'm into my things. Um, gotcha. She tolerates me. I mean, I've taken her to shows, I don't know, 20 times, but certain, certain bands that she likes, I'll take her. But for the most part, I go with my buddies. Yeah. It's funny. So we've not to talk about marital stuff, but my wife and I, like it just probably this last year, she finally told me, cause I'm big. I'm like, I love like a kind of like reggae, like this California reggae kind of kick back and, you know, good vibes. And I've listened to, used to listen to hard rock a long time. I mean, I've just gone through yeah. these, these things and now, so I'm on this kick. And, and so she finally just told me we've got these concerts and she just didn't really seem that into it. I'm like, I thought you love these, this music. She goes, no, you love it. Like I just come to <laughs> yeah. help to be here with you. And I thought, yeah. all right, we might need to figure this out here. Cause I don't want to force yeah, you to yeah, a yeah. concert where I'm like vibing out and going, this is great. And she's like, no, you look like an idiot. Put your hands down. You know, like, what are you doing? <laughs> you know? And so it's yeah. one of those things. So now we have like Mumford and Sons, which is kind of our, you yeah. know, I'm not, not going to yeah. say our Grateful Dead, but it's for me, like their music is like, listen to them. It's like They're a good band. band. They're a good band. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you can't go wrong with it. We've been seeing quite a few of their concerts. So, so tell me what's a California reggae band, for example. So there is one of them's called Dirty Heads. So it's a oh, uh, I know them. Yeah, yeah, I've seen yeah. I've seen them a bunch of times. Revelation is another one. I don't know them. There is oh, I'm trying to think. There's like a thousand like in in um. I like Dirty Heads. Yeah, just good live music, you know, and just good. And vibes. Sub Sublime is pretty awesome. Love Sublime. So you might be interested to know that of the 804 live shows that I've been to, the most epic was that I not only went to Bob Marley's last concert oh. on September 23rd, 1980. I am the only person known to have taken photographs at Bob Marley's last concert. And I borrowed the yearbook photographer's camera, brought it to the shows at Stanley Theater in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And because it was a big ass professional camera, they thought I was a professional photographer. <laughs> and I was able to go right down to the front. I took some amazing photos. And those photos are now historic photos, um, the only known visual record of Bob Marley's last concert. And there's a, a documentary called Marley that came out four or five years ago. And my photos are five minutes of that movie because that last concert was really, really important in telling the story because it was the only show that Marley performed knowing that he was going to die of brain cancer. He performed several shows at Madison Square Garden just before that in New York, and he wasn't feeling well, so he went to the doctor. The doctor said, you have brain cancer, you're going to die. And he goes, oh my gosh, and he was trying to process it, so he got the band, they took the bus and went to Pittsburgh, did that show, and then they decided to cancel the rest of the tour, and he never did another show again. Wow. That's incredible. So that's, that's kind of epic. Um, that's too. kind of like you ran past epic. Like you, like you uh -huh, kind of uh -huh. flipped epic off and went past it. I mean, that's incredible. Yeah. That's, I'm going to have to, so it's a documentary called Marley, huh? 
It's a documentary called Marley. And if you go to my blog and just type in Bob Marley, so go to davidmirrenscott.com, find my blog, type in Bob Marley. I wrote up the um, story about how that all went down, put it on there and some, the photos are up there as well. Okay, I'm gonna check that out. I'm a huge Bob Marley fan. I, you know, obviously just his music. I love that. Like I said, for me, when I'm growing up, I listen to a lot of different types of music, but just it's that yeah. kind of that vibe of kickback and kind of one love and hanging out and let's kind of, you know. Yeah, I'm, it's great. We're no, gonna I love feel more it too. of that now. I love it too. Yeah, I love it. I think so too. I think so too. You know, I think that whole be nice to everyone, be kind. I think that's coming back. I do. I'm excited about that. I'm excited about that because I'm already kind of putting that out there in the universe. And I guess hopefully everybody will start picking it up. So now this is going to be interesting for you because I, you're having a very eclectic background. So if there was three people that you could have dinner with, that's dead or alive, who would you have dinner with and who would be at your table? This is, I'm, I'm really intrigued to hear what your answers are, especially with your background <laughs> in music and marketing and that kind of thing. At the same time. So you have, so it's a foursome. Yeah. Yeah. You're, it's a foursome. I mean, bring a friend. Yeah. I mean, it's going to be, okay. and everybody's going to be there at the table. So it's, you know, Oh, so it's dead or alive. That's interesting. Yeah. We had to go dead because it's, that's, I mean, there's some people out there that like, I mean, I had one of these guys tell me, he's like, I want Jesus. And I was like, that's awesome. I mean, I'm, right. that would be no, I got, I got it. I got it. I got it. So it's going to be Jerry Garcia. I guess that's Gosh. obvious. Yeah. Jerry. Barack Obama. There we go. And I'm going to throw you for a loop here. Miley Cyrus. <laughs> so I'm a Miley Cyrus fan. Another epic show. All my, none of my friends wanted to go with. I just thought it was the coolest thing I'd ever seen was Miley Cyrus backed by the Flaming Lips at the House of Ooh. Blues in Boston, which is a small club. She did a, a very tiny, very kind of almost secret tour. She announced the tour. And then like the first show was like three days later kind of thing. And then it popped up on my Ticketmaster alert. And I'm like, Miley Cyrus backed by the Flaming Lips. I'm down for that. So yeah. I, got, I got, I called around to my concert buddies, you know, I'm like, hey, you want to go to this? And everyone said no. It's like, <laughs> oh man, this is going to be epic. So yeah, so that's my dinner foursome. I think that would be a really interesting conversation between those four, the four of us. That would be my God, Miley Cyrus. Yeah, I would have. I wouldn't have guessed that. That was definitely from left field. I do. That I do always throws that. that always throws people for a loop when I pull out my Miley Cyrus. You need that. <laughs> you need that though. You need to throw people a loop. That's that's a good. I thing. don't want people to think they have me figured out. No, that's that's the worst. That's the worst. I I, re, I remind my wife that every day. Right when she thinks she understands who I am, I'm different. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So here, last question before we uh, jump off here. So if you had ten million dollars, I'll give you a ten million dollar lottery ticket. How would you spend the money? Where would you where would you put the money? Isn't that interesting? Okay, so I'm doing just fine. So I don't think I would spend spend it on my might stick a little bit in the bank just for security purposes, but yeah. then I would figure out ways to share it with the universe. You know, right now we're dealing with COVID-19 and we've mentioned we talked about throughout this podcast that I love speaking, I love the speaking circuit, I love being on a stage. And, you know, we, we can't speak now. The entire speaking industry is completely shut down. And um, I'll be fine, you know, personally, I'll be fine. But I really worry about the freelancers in the speaking business who are plan meetings, who set up the stages, who work the soundboards, who work backstage, who work the lighting, who work security, people like that. I think it'd be really cool to figure out how to take a big, pretty big chunk of that $10 million, maybe half of it, and set up a foundation right now to support people in the public speaking business and the event business 
who've lost their jobs and who are, for whatever reason, living gig to gig and having trouble making rent and having trouble even putting food on the table. Because I know some of those people are facing those problems. And the professionals that make me look good every week because they're working the soundboard, because they're working the lights, because they made a beautiful stage for me to present from, those people are hurting way more than I am right now. I'd love to be able to support them somehow. That's awesome. I love it, man. I'll tell you, David, you got good vibes about you, bud. I, I do appreciate Thank that. You. I appreciate love it. That. I always talk about the universe. I think it's kind of nice how things, whether it be book ideas or whether it be giving back, I think that's something that everybody needs to think about these days. So I'm a really, really, really big believer in the idea that the more you give to the universe, the more the universe gives back. I'm not religious, but if I were to say, what's my religion, that's what it would be. The more you give to the universe, the more the universe gives back to you. So that's sort of what I live by. I was raised by California hippies. So that was pretty much our mantra. <laughs> I think that's what we pretty much nice. had up on the wall was like, hey, you got to give back to nice. the universe. The universe tells you something you should probably listen. So yeah. Well, you guys, well, David, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. And you guys, if you guys like listening to the podcast and if you want to hear more of it, make sure you guys subscribe to it. And David, oh, another thing is, David, if anybody wants to get in contact with you, obviously, how can they get in contact with you? So my full name, David Meerman Scott, I'm the only one on the planet. So you will find me if you go to the Google machine. Um, I have a great site at fanocracy.com where there's lots of free content about fanocracy. And on the socials, I am DM Scott. That's D-M-S-C-O-T-T. Awesome, David. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thanks, Shane. It was really fun to talk with you. Take care, my friend.